happened downstairs, but it uh, looks like a number have deserted us, but I'm glad you're here. Just a reminder that um, you turn your clocks back one hour next week, so keep that, keep that in mind. And now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God. You should have gotten a Psalm 114 uh, that we will sing together. We'll sing it to the tune of Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. That's in the Trinity on 549 if you want to see the music. But let's stand together and let's sing uh, Psalm 114. Let's pray together. Jason, could you lead us in prayer, please? seated. You might be familiar with the sports term, a sleeper, which is a 
guy or girl who you don't think much of on the team, but when you look more closely, you find out that they are making a huge contribution. They're, they're way better than, than you thought they were. And Psalm 114 is, was somewhat like that to me. It's just a little seven verse, eight verse uh, insert in, in, the, in the great book of Psalms. And I didn't think much about it, but as I <coughs> read what other men uh, say about it, I, I found out Otherwise, I want to read you a, a couple of quotes. <clears throat> the nice thing about uh, Mr. Plumer is that he gives his commentary, his comments, and he also, being a well-read man, gives comments from others. So I'll, I'll read his comment first. He says, It, meaning the psalm, has been long and justly admired for its poetic beauty. And then he gives a quote from Mr. Clark. In, who says, it is elegantly and energetically composed. And that's something we can't really see as English speakers. We don't know uh, the Hebrew, uh, the, the Bible Hebrew, that these were written. And we don't see the, the beauty of it as it's compared to other Psalms. And then he quotes a man named Drake, who says, the exodus of Israel from Egypt with some of its most remarkable accompanying and consequent miracles are, in this brief psalm, commemorated in the boldest style of poetry with personifications indeed of inanimate nature, of the utmost daring and sublimity. One of the gaps in, in my education was poetry, literature. <laughs> and so I appreciate men like this who can see... Uh, these things and bring them out to us and and we can be reminded that God uses the beauty of art in his worship uh, throughout uh, this book of, of Psalms and it's a wonderful thing we saw in Psalm 111 this is this comes on the heels of the praise Yahweh uh, trilogy basically Psalm 113. 111, 12, and 13, where in verse, in chapter 111, we see the work of Yahweh and praise Him for that. 112, we see the workmanship of Yahweh, the work of Jehovah in His people, and how glorious His people are. And we should uh, appreciate his, the glory of His inheritance in the saints as we look around. And then 113, we praise the name of Yahweh. Well, here we have uh, Yahweh in those works that are often commemorated, which is the work of redemption uh, from Egypt. And we have here the, the use of, of uh, as, as was mentioned, the, the use of personification, the, the, the speaking as if, inanimate uh, objects of creation were actually alive. And so as we read through this, notice the uh, comparison of the terms given in verses 3 and 4, and then in, again in verses 5 and 6, we have the sea, the river, the mountains, the hills, and they, these are personified in, in verses 5 and 6. 
And this is intended to teach us, verse 7, to tremble. The earth trembles before Yahweh. And this is not just an old covenant uh, doctrine. If you would uh, take the time to uh, follow it through the New Testament, for instance, Hebrews 12 uh, 28, our God is a consuming fire. We should tremble um, before him. But the beauty, uh, again, in this psalm is that he doesn't leave us just trembling. That would be a horrible thing to, to live in that, uh, that state, though it's a necessary entrance into grace is the fear of the Lord. But then we have the rock added to the list of the inanimate uh, creation that is shown as alive, turning into a water. The the grace of God uh, flows from the rock, which is Christ, uh, to uh, meet our needs uh, in this wilderness. He doesn't just leave us in trembling. So I'll read from uh, the ESV, Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Now before we open the word of God, take the Trinity hymn book and turn to number 62. 62 in the Trinity Hymn Book, Before Jehovah's Awful Throne, 62.
seated. I just want to remind you that we've had several requests for various ones who especially have physical needs, ones that aren't necessarily a part of this assembly, but we pray for and we need to pray for, not only for the physical needs, but for their spiritual well-being. I'm reminded of uh, Heidi, Heidi, uh, used to be tennis, I'm not sure, what is it? Shorter, Heidi Shorter has had real physical pain with gallbladder. She's due to have surgery on November the 11th, and that's still, she was in the ER this weekend again with so much pain, and so we could ask that God move that up, that God would use this in her life to do her good. Uh, Caitlin uh, was in the hospital. Uh, Quentin, I don't know if you know any updates with regard to Caitlin and what's going Okay, so to pray for Caitlin as she also is experiencing some physical difficulties that have her in the hospital, so dealing with her. And then Chloe, we were praying for Chloe. Do you have an update, Browns? How's she doing? She gets a transfusion tomorrow. Okay. So uh, here are three that aren't necessarily a part. They are a part of this group because they're related in some way or another, but various needs. Uh, Tricia has had a good week. Uh, no big changes, but uh, we're thankful for that. So let's take a moment. And, and Ken, would you lead us in prayer, praying for these ones in particular that God's brought into our midst or had us have contact with?
Amen. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate that. Well, this afternoon, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. I think I mentioned a couple Wednesday nights ago that I'm going through the book of Amos myself and reading this last week, Amos 9, and uh, having little time for study at times. I thought it would be good if we would just take this and go over it. Uh, in our time together this afternoon, uh, we often pray the Lord's Prayer, and in praying the Lord's Prayer, one of the statements that we make is, Thy kingdom come. Our Lord told us to seek first the kingdom of God, and sometimes I think we utter those things or we are, think about those things, but we really don't dwell upon what that means. What does it mean when we say, Thy kingdom come? What does it mean when we seek first the kingdom of God? What's that talking about? Well, I believe Amos chapter 9 leads us in that direction to give us some understanding of the kingdom of God that is on the one hand here, but on the other hand is not fully known. And so when you come to the study of the book of Amos, you come to a book in which there's the great deal of pronouncements of judgment, the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel and of Judah. And this final chapter is no exception. When you come to this chapter in the first several verses, it is a sobering reminder of the great judgment of God upon those who oppose Him. But also found in this chapter is the pronouncement of hope, the hope of the coming of the Messiah. So you have both the judgment of God, the fierce and right and just judgment of God, and yet the hope of the Messiah and the restoration for the people of God. If, if we come to this chapter, we could divide it up into those two things. You see, there's the vision of judgment, and then there's the vision of hope or restoration. The prophet Amos has been crying out against the great sins of Israel, their sin against God. And here in these latter chapters, he set before us the vision that spoke to these judgments of God. They point to God's judgment. There was locusts, there was fire, there was destruction, there was the the right fruit that's picked and put in the basket. And with all these visions, there is the coming of God's judgment. Such harsh words spoken were coming from a heart of love. It was a desire that that the people would repent and, and turn away from their sins. His warning 
uh, were for their good. He, he desires. I mean, it's his hope, it's his desire is to, to spare them from that judgment. And so when we come to chapter 9, again, he, he gives that warning. We see here in verse 1, And I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said... Now, there is some debate of exactly what altar this is. On the one hand, there, there was the altar of God Almighty, and then there's the altar of the false gods. Which altar is he speaking about? The, the true altar of God in the holy place um, declares God's presence, God's delight. And here he is acknowledging and setting forth the very reality of the danger because of the anger as he sits there before the, the altar and he has, his presence is there and he speaks about the danger and the anger that he feels. On the other hand, it could be that he's standing before the false altars, the altars of the false gods. And in some ways, if, if that's what he's doing, if he's standing before the false altars of the false gods, he's basically saying, folks, you've been caught. You've been caught. And so it's not real clear which he's speaking of here. It's one of the two. But certainly he is speaking of the inescapable judgment that will fall upon God's enemies, upon those who oppose him. And there, there are three things that I would have you notice as you read through this chapter concerning the judgment of God. You'll, you'll notice the certainty of the judgment. Secondly, you will, you will notice the reason for the judgment. And thirdly, I, I want to say something about the authority behind the judgment. So this judgment is coming, and first of all, he sets before his hearers the reality or the certainty of the judgment. Judgment is coming, and no one is going to escape. The one this judgment is pursuing will not escape. For many years, God has warned the people for Almost 150 plus years, he has warned these people to turn from their sins. There have been different kings that have come on stage. There are generations that have passed. But these people will not repent. And so he wants them to know you're not going to escape. Look, look at... Look at verse 1. Let's read the complete verse. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals, so that the threshold will shake, and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a ref, ref they will not have a refuge who will flee, a, a refuge who will flee. In other words, he's saying there's no place they're going to go to escape this judgment. It will happen. And then 
he runs down to the various ways. He imagines somebody says, well, I will escape because I will do this. I will escape because I will go here. And he tells them there's no place for you to run. God's judgment will catch up for it with you for sure. Verse 2. Though they dig into Shiloh, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from the sight, my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the servants and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it will slay them. And I will set my eye against them for evil and not for good. God is giving them a challenge. You find your best hiding place where you think you're going to be able to hide from God and I'll find you. Now, I did not grow up in the time of video games and so forth. Did not grow up when everybody had a telephone and could play games on it. We had, we had to go outside to play. And one of the things that we played was hide-and-seek. You ever play hide-and-seek? Some of you are my age. Hide-and-seek. Maybe they're still playing it. I don't know. My grandkids like to do that around the house. They like to try to hide. And they look for the best place to hide where they think nobody's going to find them. And sometimes they do a good job. Sometimes, you know, you have to say, you know, back in our day, I don't know if you did we had to say, Ollie, Ollie, all in free. I don't know what that meant, except, okay, come out. We're not, we give up. We can't find you. God is saying, I'm never going to have to say, Ollie, Ollie, all in free. Because I'm going to find you. You're not going to be able to hide. You can dig a pit. You can dig a pit and go down to the center of the earth. I'll find you. You, you can... Go into the heavens. You can be an astronaut and get into a space capsule and fly up into the sky, into outer space. I'll find you. You can go to the bottom of the sea. And you know what? I've got sea creatures down there. I control them. And they're going to bite you. I'll get you. One way or another. You can go into captivity. You might say, I know, I'll go into the land of our enemies. I'll be a captive. And God says, you know what? I control your enemies as well. And you won't get away. It won't happen. Anywhere you think you might go to hide from my judgment, it will not happen. Why? Because I have set my eyes against you. My eyes see all things. And I've set my eyes against you for evil and not for good. How sobering is that? When God says, I've set my eyes, I know where you are, I am the omnipresent God, you cannot hide from me, 
And I've set my eyes on you for evil. As believers, one of the great comforts of life is the fact that that God knows and and God is always there. There's not a time in my life when, when God is unsure of what's going on with me. I just we just got a card in the mail and and on the card were five things that you need to know about God when you're going through trial. And one of the five things is God is never surprised by what's going on in your life. If if you would have asked me three months ago what my life would be like. I would tell you, it, it's, it's going to be the same. I mean, it, it's, it's my life is my life. It's, it's no big deal. Little did I know what God had and what we were going to pass through. But God wasn't surprised. God was never surprised. And, and that's what he's telling us here. He's telling us that when it comes to my judgment... To fall upon the wicked. My eyes are there. And that judgment will come. It will come. Try to hide as you were. In Psalm 34 in verse 16, he says something like this. I've, I've set my face against you. That's, that's a sobering thing. You see, the wicked... The unbeliever, the disobedient, finds no comfort in the reality that that God has eyes that sees everything that I do. The believer finds comfort in that, but not the unbeliever that God knows. It sounds almost like Psalm 139, when the psalmist says, where can I go from my presence? I mean, that's, that's a psalm of comfort. If, if I go to the deepest parts of the earth again, if I, if I go to the darkest place where it's so dark you can't see anything, it's like a bright light from God. He sees everything. You're never going to hide from God and from his judgment. So there's the certainty. That's the first. There's, there's a certainty of judgment that is coming. But secondly, notice with me the cause. Why? Why this judgment? Now notice what he says. Go down to verse 7. Are you not as the son of Ethiopia to me? O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. Have I not bought up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines out of Kothor and the Armenians from Kerr? And then he says it again. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on sinful kingdoms. And I will destroy it from the face of the earth. He says here, you know why? You know why judgment is coming? It is coming because you've become like pagan nations to me. Other nations have not had my word given to them. Other nations have not been given the revelation that you've been given. And you might recall that that you're a people who who I delivered up out of Egypt. 
And you might think to yourselves, we're a privileged people. Look at what God has done. He's brought us out of Egypt. But he says, I want you to know, I've done the same thing to other nations. I did it to the Philistines. I did it to the Armenians. I've done it, I've done it to others. The difference is not just the privilege of having me deliver you from your enemies, but the difference is I gave you my revelation. I told you how you were to live. Isn't that what we've been looking at? You don't remember Deuteronomy 4 and 5. God says, Here, here's the way you're to live. Here's the way you're to act. When you go into this strange land, you be obedient to my word. Do these ten words as you live amongst the people. Don't allow yourselves to be caught up with their idols. You've been given that privilege. You've heard the word of God. And yet, you haven't been obedient. And so you become like pagan people to me, says God. You're no different. You're no different than any one of them. And what he says is, don't claim Moses and Joshua thinking that you can live as you want and get away with it. Don't, don't hide behind your past and what has happened. Don't do that. Because it's not going to work. It will not. He goes on. Speak here, look at verse 9. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in its sheaves, and not a kernel will fall to the ground. All, sin, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword, and those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront me. Here's a group of people that says it's never going to happen to us. This will never take place. Look at our history. Look at our past. Look at our heritage. And God says, that's the talk of a foolish person. Because I'll bring my judgment upon you. And so we see the cause. They become like a pagan people. And then thirdly, notice here concerning this judgment, the authority of the judgment. The authority of the judgment. And here we come to verses 5 and 6. And, and here, here's what one man is called the resume of Almighty God. Who is this God who's saying this? The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rise like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who built his upper chambers in the heavens and has found his vault dome over the earth. He who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Jehovah is his name. He is the almighty God. The one who's declaring these things is God almighty. And the question that needs to be asked is, do you really want to deal with God in your sin? Do you really want to stand before all God, Almighty God, who knows you all together, who you will not fool, who you will not hide from? Are you ready to stand before God? It's, it's sad. 
They've been given so much, but they will not obey. They will not repent of their sin. Therefore, God will bring judgment upon them. Now, there's a couple things I want to say in light of that. Number one, perhaps you're here. Perhaps you're listening by live stream. Perhaps you'll listen to this somewhere down the road. I don't know. But there are some of you who who act just like they act. I will not bow my knee to God. I will not turn away from my sins. I'm a fairly decent human being. I've got a good heritage. I've got a mom and dad who love the Lord. I've got grandparents who love God. I've been a part of a church all my life. God will not bring judgment upon me. What a foolish statement that is to make. Would to God that you would turn from your sin while you have breath in your nostrils so that you do not experience the judgment of God. The second thing I would say with regard to all this and how it ought to all the more encourage us to be greater witnesses for Christ. How, How does one escape such judgment? It only comes through knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And how we ought to be a people that seek to give out the gospel. It's the only hope. It's their only hope. There are some, Paul says, who have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And how we ought to have greater boldness in our witness. Oftentimes we've kept our mouths shut because we don't know, want people to think less of us or were somewhat embarrassed by setting before them the reality of their sin and their need of a Savior. But my friend, it's the only hope. So here we have the inescapable judgment of God. But then, when we come to verse 11, there is this shift in tone. A shift in the tone. And he reminds them that God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. Why will you die? And here he tells us that there's going to be a change. There's going to be a kingdom, a wonderful kingdom, that shall be set up. Let me just read it to you and just remind you of the blessings that are set before us concerning this kingdom. Verse 11, and in that day I will raise up the fallen booths of David and the wall and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild as it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the reaper of grapes, him who sows seed. And when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved and I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. 
and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from the land which I have given them, says the Lord God. There's a, there's a restoration of the kingdom of God. There's the restoring of God's kingdom. It will be a time in which there will be material prosperity. Verse 13. There will be a time when there will be assured physical security. The first part of verse 14. It will be a time of enable personal productivity. Verse 14b. And he will guarantee eternal stability. Verse 15. It will be a wonderful time of, of relationship with God, full and free and blessed. It, it will be a, a time of, of great rejoicing and peace. A time of universal peace when that kingdom comes. So when does it come? When does it come? We'll turn over to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And here in this portion of Scripture, Paul and Barnabas are standing before the Jerusalem Council to give some explanation of what God is doing among the Gentile nations. And as they're speaking, you come down to verse 13. The question is raised, will the Gentiles be saved? What will this be like? And, and, and we read these words. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which was fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who, called, who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. What's he quoting? He's quoting Amos. He's quoting Amos here. And this is the fulfillment of what Amos has said. With the coming of the Messiah is the establishment of this kingdom. The restoration of the kingdom. Where the true Israel will, will know God and, and have a relationship with God. There, there, there's a time of peace. A time of prosperity. A, a good season. And you see, someone may ask, well, if it was with the coming of Christ, then well, like John the Baptist asked, are you the Messiah or we look for another? I'm here in prison suffering for the cause of Christ. When your kingdom comes, it was supposed to be peace and prosperity. And the, and the wicked were to experience great judgment. But now here I am, you're here, and, and I'm in prison. And, and what's going on? And, and our Lord commended John. Because he realized, on the one hand, yes, his kingdom has come. With the coming of Christ comes his kingdom. We're a part of that kingdom. All of us who know him, all of us who have come to him by faith and repentance are a part of that kingdom. 
But the full climactic end is not yet known. So what are we praying for? Thy kingdom come. We want to see that day when Christ comes as that great warrior to destroy the enemy and set up a new heaven and a new earth where he reigns and rules a time of peace and prosperity and blessing for his people. So on the one hand, we are in the kingdom if we know Christ. And yet on the other hand, we're praying thy kingdom come to see it in its final stage of blessing, joy, delight, and peace. And Amos understands that reality. It'll be a time of great judgment, but it'll be a time of great blessing and joy and prosperity. And so we cry out, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the midst of living in this world and seeing all the opposition and experiencing all the calamity, the disease, the sickness, when we hear of the wars, when we live in times of uncertainty, difficulty, challenges, things aren't easy, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we long for that day. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. So here's the question. It'll be a day of great terror and judgment for some. A day of great blessing and delight for others. And where do we stand? Where are we in the midst of all that? Well, may God be pleased to help us look for that kingdom, desire that kingdom in its fullness, but live in that kingdom even now where Jesus Christ is our King and our Ruler. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that in the midst of all that's going on around us, you have a plan and you have a purpose. And Father, we know that there's coming a great day of judgment in which your wrath will be poured out. And our hearts go out when we think of many, many who even are in churches today and yet who do not know you. And to realize the, the, the sheer torture, the separation, Father, how we pray that we would be stirred to be greater witnesses, to give the gospel, so that by giving the gospel, you would be pleased to bring men to faith and repentance. Father, we're thankful that many of us that gather here this afternoon are a part of that kingdom. You are a king. You're the one who rules over everything. And Father, how we give you thanks that we have the assurance that, that your eye is upon us. 
And you're at work in our hearts and lives. And, and our promise is that you'll work it for good. That, that one day we'll know the blessing of, 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 of sheer delight as we're in your presence and worshiping you as we ought, free from sin, free from sickness. Father, we pray that we might be found a people that are eager for that day, that we greatly anticipate that day. Help us, we pray. So, Father, work in hearts and lives so that you receive glory and honor as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing 599, familiar hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, The Dawn of Heaven Breaks, 599. Let's stand together. 